Hey, man. How's it going? Good, mate. Your, your excuses are worse than my, my dog ate my homework. I'm here, Every buddy. time we have this, my Wi-Fi cuts out, every, every at least once a week, my Wi-Fi cuts out, and you say you're based in yeah. the U.S. <laughs> yeah, I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a uh, random part. R- random island that has no extradition with the U.S. Yes, it's called Florida. Yeah, sure. That's a How good segue. Segway to what? Oh, to, okay, yeah, it is a good segue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is a good segue. Well, now we're talking, we're talking about, about extradition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. CZ is still in the US. He's not allowed to leave. Which yeah, I, I think that, that's nonsense, man. Like, uh, it's, uh, I guess we'll talk about it more, but it seems like complete garbage. The guy completely turned himself in, settled a deal. The expectation was that he could go home and they're just going to keep him here, but he can do whatever he wants just in the US. I, I don't really get it. Yeah, uh, is uh, Carlo? Yeah, Carlo's up. Lawyer's up as well, guys. So can, what 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 do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know that if he could go to somewhere that has an extradition treaty. Like, if he's possibly facing sentencing and he's probably got hundreds of millions of dollars somewhere and he's going somewhere without an extradition treaty, I mean, it's not blasphemous to me to to say that's not okay. But um, you know, I agree. I agree with your sentiment. Like, he's he should be able to see his family. And this the expectation, I think, at least from what was reported, was that, you know, he was turning himself in amicably. They made a deal and he knows he's coming back. He, tur- he already came to court of his own volition in the first day of place. Just seems like uh, eh, overkill. Uh, look, it's up to the federal judge. Uh, the government apparently, for whatever reason, didn't work out the terms of his release in the plea agreement. And they proposed a release plan, and the magistrate judge approved it. And then the government uh, decided that that was uh, not restrictive enough. I agree with you, Scott. He came of his own volition. He could have just cooled his heels and hung out in the United Arab Emirates, where it would have been difficult to extradite him. Also, remember that uh, under the court's order of release conditions, if he were to not appear, that would trigger a separate criminal offense for violating his release conditions. And I don't think he would jeopardize uh, his future in that way. Yeah, that, that's exactly my take. Lawyer. Yeah, it's just, you're all right. It's just discretionary, right? So the, the, the judge said, you know, no. And that's just, you know, all these factors are important, but there's a lot of discretion there. And the judge said, I, I'm not sure you'll come back if you're sentenced. And so, no. But hold on, is this final now? Is this like final? No, it's not. In front of the court? No. Correct. What happened is the magistrate judge who took the guilty plea and set the release conditions entered an order. The government then filed a response to that order. That goes to the district judge. The district judge is going to be the sentencing judge in this case, and they have the ultimate say in everything. So the district judge issued an order this morning, or I should I think it was yesterday afternoon, late afternoon saying that he is going to revisit this and take a close look at all of it and make a final determination. So it could get set for a hearing if the judge wants to hear more evidence. But according to the words of the judge's order, having considered the briefing and the files and pleadings herein, the court determines it will review the decision of Magistrate Judge Brian T. Brian A. I can't even begin to pronounce that name with all due respect to the judge, Tushida, I believe it is, 
permitting defendant to return to United Arab Emirates pending sentencing pursuant to conditions of his appearance bond. So he has stayed that condition of release pending further review. Okay, so so it's not final. It's not final. Um, when initially when uh, CZ pleaded guilty, they were talking about a maximum 18 months in prison. And then yesterday I saw something that came out from the DOJ that the DOJ is actually seeking like 10 years in prison. So maybe just some clarity Here, as to like what the maximum is yeah. at the moment. Happy to clarify, Rand. So there's guidelines for these offenses. And I've been involved in these uh, unlicensed money exchange cases under 18 U.S.C. 1960. And they do carry a maximum penalty of five years. He has multiple counts in the information that he pled to. Then you look at sentencing guidelines and the estimated guideline range, according to the plea summary that was released, is 18 months. But remember that the judge has full discretion to argue uh, to to hear argument from the government anywhere up to the statutory maximum. So that's the maximum that the government is proposing that could happen here is the 10 years. The 18 months is the estimated guideline range, and it'll be ultimately up to the judge where the judge decides to land on all of this. Now, I want to understand something. So CZ obviously had a big decision to make as to whether or not he's going to come back to the USA or continue to live, should we say, on the run, right? Like he had a big he had, he had to make a big decision. Um, did he, is there any way that before he made the decision, he had closed door meetings with like, I don't know, the prosecutors or whatever else where, where in those meetings, uh, he, they said, look, if you come back and you plead guilty, um, then you know, we will, you're not going to serve more than, or we will only push for X, Y, Z, or is that not how it works? Is it all completely transparent? There's two options when it comes to federal sentencing. A defendant, and, and to answer your question, yes, I do believe there were definitely closed door meetings between his defense team and the government that led to this ultimate decision for him to not uh, consider resisting and and staying in the UAE and resisting and, and, and seeking extradition back. But there's two ways you can resolve a case in federal court. One is by way of a plea bargain agreement where you have a guideline range. And then there is an 11C1C plea agreement where you can plea to a set amount of time. You can actually sign a plea agreement contract where you agree to 18 months. Both parties have to agree to it. And then it's up to the court to ultimately approve it at the time of sentencing. That option doesn't appear to have been elected in this case by the government. They instead wanted to plea him now, he did get benefit of the bargain here because they could have charged him with much more serious counts like money laundering, which would have increased his guidelines. But I think given the size of the forfeiture and fine that he agreed to pay, he did get the benefit of that bargain to limit his exposure at sentencing. But there was no written agreement that I am aware of to a set amount of time. Okay, um, fair enough, fair enough. Um Scott, Mario, any further feedback here? Oh, wait, sorry, one more thing. Uh, this is so, I'm finding this so in insightful. Um, SEC. So CZ still has the SEC on his back. Is there a chance that the SEC uncovers more criminal findings, number one? And number two, the SEC filed uh, or um, wanted to file something that was going to remain secret. I don't remember what the name of that, uh, that, that um, process is called, but they said, look, we want to file something that actually remains uh, secretive. Um, do you think that that had anything to do with the charges that were brought to CZ? I don't think so. I think the, the SEC wanted to file certain things under seal because they did not want to impede the criminal investigation that was going on. 
And I think there will be finality as far as the Department of Justice case goes, because generally in plea agreements, the government agrees not to prosecute a defendant for any non-tax related crimes that are relevant conduct to the offense. So I think this plea agreement covers all the conduct the government wants to punish him for, unless new stuff arises as far as future crimes. But I think for the past acts he's committed, I think that this plea bargain agreement will bring closure to his U.S. criminal charges, and then it'll be up to the SEC to whatever decision they want as far as sanctioning him and Binance. Okay, so probably he'll get a penalty from the SEC. Probably they'll pay another fine at some point, a civil fine, and, and settle it, right? That's like, I mean, I know you can't tell the future, but it seems like that's the route that it's going, right? I, I can't see much logic in continuing to resist on the SEC side, especially given the devastating blow that Binance has suffered as far as their ability to do business in the United States. I don't know that there's much worth to fight about anymore. So it's very possible they just they may just reach a compromise here and agree to wasn't, a Wasn't a, a big chunk of the SEC case dependent on the idea that there was commingling of funds or that there could be a level of insolvency or, or that Binance had done some things in that direction? And DOJ pretty much clarified that that wasn't the case. Even when CZ tweeted... Uh, after. Yeah, I mean, that, that was definitely a driving allegation in the SEC's complaint. And DOJ doesn't appear to have gone down that road. I think they were more focused on the avoidance of anti-money laundering measures under the Bank Secrecy Act and the, the, the ignoring of users in the United States uh, bypassing through VPN and the company yeah. sort of... It, not not necessarily uh, cracking down on that, which was the the the, the drive of their criminal right, prosecution, which were historical actions and things that nobody was really even alleging are currently happening uh, at this point. Anyways, seemingly uh, when they were in a less regulated environment, now obviously have become under a spotlight and probably more compliant. It just seems like the SEC case at this point holds a bit less water, and. If the SEC's goal really is about what Americans can do and what's allowed in, in the United States, they outright killed Binance US just with the allegations in, in the first place, and Americans aren't using Binance. So it seems like there's not much there at this point. Not to mention, given, what is it, five years of very strict oversight of Binance by, uh, by US officials, I, I can't see any more greater consumer protection than that. I mean, they are under complete transparency now and under total uh, requirement to comply and open their books to the United States. Right. Do we think that by anyone here, Rand, maybe you, do you think that Binance US has any future? I mean, from what I've no, seen, they have no right. banking relationships, the volume's gone, but could think, it come back? I think it's actually, I think they actually as part of the, um, what do you call it, as part of the conditions, Binance US actually has to shut down. I think that's actually, that was yeah. actually one of the conditions. So I think it's yeah, actually- it wasn't clear if it was Binance US shut down or that quote unquote Binance couldn't operate in the United States if there's still a belief that they're yeah. separate entities. So when I read it, and I don't remember how I read it because it's a couple of days ago, I think I read it as if Binance has to leave the US so they can't serve US customers. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe right. Maybe it was that Binance International can't serve US customers. Yeah, I don't know if anyone has clarity on that, but I'll, I'll look deeper into that. But it, it was, you know, they, they uh, killed Binance US without due process or proving anything simply by making the allegations and then having the banking relationships cut off. So the, that, that's, that fine. Un- that, that's fine. I mean, that's pretty much like if you think about it, um, it's very similar to like um, 
like the bank, the banks. If you think about the U.S. banks, the U.S. banks are really strong in the U.S. And then if you think about the Eastern banks, like HSBC, HSBC just isn't that strong. And it's you know you can just you break it up into countries and territories, and you know some organizations are better than others in certain jurisdictions, and that's just the way it's going to play out for crypto as well. Yeah, I, I understand that. I just think it was somewhat unfair that with unproven allegations in the civil suit, they effectively just murdered the, the platform entirely. But maybe that's my uh, perspective. I, I think that you uh, deserve due process. Show me the man. The bit of the Show me the man and I'll find the you crime. the crime. And I'll yeah. find you the crime. That's it. I mean, Binance, they, they can't allow Binance to operate in the United States. No, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. That's unfake. Let's, let's get Can you hear me? Can you, yeah, you can hear me. So, yeah, so hear that's, that's, that's unfair. Like with all the information we have, we can't no, say true. find me the man yeah. and find me the crime. Um, also, I wonder. Randy, all oh, right, can't hear me. Of, uh, uh, Hayes Scott, tell was, Rand, uh, tell. Rand, Rand you can't hear Mario, I think. Is that correct? No, I can't hear, I can't hear Mario. Just yeah. take me down. I'll, 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 I'll yeah, yeah, well, figure oh, this platform out for fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I was saying is just very unfair what Rand said. I was going to go to Arthur Hayes as well, so I'm glad Rand went to it. Um, and as I bring up Rand, let me just quickly give a shout out to the sponsor. We've pinned their tweet at the top. Um, it's a very simple use case, one that makes sense, essentially tokenizing gold. Gold's been doing really well over the last few months. Gareth, I'm not sure. Do you do you invest in gold, Gareth, or purely crypto and equities? No, I'm a big investor in gold, especially based on what I'm seeing in the charts, based on, you know, basically the same reasons why people are bullish on Bitcoin. I'm very bullish on gold overall. So again, the printing presses, whether it's in a year or five years, are going to have to be started up again. And, um, you know, while Bitcoin is more of a speculative alternative to, you know, to to safety, um, the digital gold, if you will. But but I think that gold is just kind of it's been it's been the store of safety for thousands of years. So so I am your, a big investor thoughts, in gold. Your thoughts and, and anyone that wants to check out gold DAO, I'll, I'll talk about them in a bit. Uh, but your thoughts on tokenizing gold, democratizing access to the asset. Yeah, I think I think it's it's a definitely a a way to do it. I, I don't know a whole lot about the inner workings of it, but honestly, any way that you can get the average person out there to have more access to buying uh, or diversifying their own portfolios, I think is a no brainer. So, Mario, are we bringing, are we bringing them up later? Yeah, 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 we're bringing them up. We're gonna get them in. Go yeah, because I have a lot. Yeah, it's really interesting. I want to ask. Yeah, we're gonna questions. Yeah, go ahead. Same. I was, I I was a, asking David I, questions. Go ahead, Ryan. I have a, I have a couple of thoughts regarding tokenizing gold. I've thought about it long and hard, and uh, I've often asked myself the question as to whether tokenizing gold is a good thing or a bad thing. And so this is what I, I realized. There's two reasons. There's three reasons to tokenize gold. The first reason to tokenize gold is to allow easier access for for on gold um, than having to buy it via an ETF or via a, a US market. That's the first one, or a market. The second reason to tokenize gold is to get access without having to do KYC. So some people, you know, you can buy tokenized gold on a DEX without doing any KYC. The third reason to tokenize gold is to be able to trade gold specifically on weekends when the gold markets are actually closed. So, you know, if you look on the weekends and you want to trade gold and something happens on the weekend and you want to put your whole portfolio into gold, I think it's almost impossible to do it. But now with a gold-backed token, that's the one avenue where you can actually be in trade in and out of gold in, in, in times when all the markets are actually closed. And I don't know what, exactly what the time zones are, but there's a lull every weekend where markets are actually closed and you actually can't trade gold. 
That's the yeah, I mean, that's a good that's a good case for tokenized, obviously, uh, stocks. Uh, I mean, basically anything tradable. Sure. Um, so that's for yeah. me. That's for me is the that for me is the. But why? But Ren, why do you think it hasn't gained? So this is one of the most obvious use cases when it comes to the blockchain. Why do you think it hasn't gained traction until recently? Because I think that there's major risks when you tokenize gold. The major, the biggest risk is. If you tokenize gold, what you want to know is that there's a proof of reserves for the gold that's being tokenized somewhere. So let's, like, you know, if, if, if the company tokenizes a billion dollars worth of gold, you want to make sure that they actually have got a billion dollars worth of gold, number one. Number two, you want to make sure that the company can't lose. If they have got gold, you want to make sure that the company can't lose the gold. So, you know, there's one thing about government seizing gold that's sitting at a at a central bank or somewhere like that. But there's another thing about, you know, a government swooping into a company and just saying, you know, we believe you've acted unethically. We're therefore taking all, the, all this gold and we're seizing it. And that can happen, right? Uh, we've seen that. And so I think that one of the biggest risks with tokenized gold is that the government says, we don't like what you're doing. We come in, we freeze all your gold. We've now got your gold. Now fight us in the court for the next 100 years. Good luck. Have a nice day. Alex, do you have thoughts? Yeah. Hey guys. Um, I, look, I- sorry. Yeah, Alex. Before you go, just two seconds. Uh, I was talking to myself, Ryan. So essentially, the custody problem, and that's what I want to ask the guys about. Before we go to Alex, the custody issue is your main, your only concern when it comes to tokenizing gold, because I just cannot see any other reason why custody? the use case doesn't make sense. Custody. Do you actually have the gold that you say that you have, and how custody. how well how well can I trust it? And two is um, regulation. Um, is, is the regulator coming in and saying, I'm seizing this gold and tough luck and nothing you can do about it. So we'll, we'll ask, we'll ask the sponsor those questions later in the show. So the sponsors gold Dow with pinned their tweet at the top. If you want to check him out, um, I would appreciate them partnering with the show. Uh, Alex, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I, I think when it comes to tokenized uh, real-world assets, right, where the tokens themselves represent an IOU to an off-chain asset held elsewhere, I think there's been, obviously, this is something people have tried to do for years at this point. I, I really believe there's quite limited demand today. I think an ETF, it's in, the market hours thing is interesting. That's a good point, I think, ran. Outside of that, I don't think there's any advantage uh, for the most part to to holding say a token what, what about what about alex but what about democratizing access anyone could buy the token. it just becomes a lot easier without having to go through the existing uh, banking uh, banking system yeah i mean i think with all the tokenized assets it's the same thing with like you know treasuries on chain like you, you're servicing a market that has say a metamask wallet and that's a it's a it's a market it's a global market there is perhaps easier access particularly outside you know advanced economies to you know, downloading a MetaMask and getting some Bitcoin or USDC or something like that or ETH and then using it to access some other financial product. But it's that that's a small market. Like so. So my point is, is like to, a, absent the adoption of regulation that allows this at scale and to interact with the traditional financial system, all the tokenized products are effectively just catering towards crypto wealth. Right. Or, or global. So, well, so there, there's some Alex positive just, there, but it's, yeah. it's small to on, on the flip side though. Yeah. I don't disagree necessarily on the flip side though. We're seeing pretty big uptick in activity on real world assets being tokenized on private blockchains between these institutions. 
right? So there's sort of seemingly a gap between those two. You're saying if you tokenize it, it's really for the crypto audience, but then there are, you know, JP Morgan Onyx and BlackRock settling with Barclays, uh, you know, digit, uh, tokenized money market. There's real use cases. I think that that's just not necessarily investable from the public side. Yeah, I, I think if we rebuilt the traditional financial system from scratch, we would absolutely use distributed ledgers and blockchains. Um, there's there's no doubt in my mind that they're better for settling, you know, trades and clearing. But I think, you know, if you look at some of those examples, they're they're mostly innovation theater today, in my opinion, right? Like there's really no reason that BlackRock or and JPM or, or Barclays and JPM need to use Onyx, right? And and I think if you talk to the folks who built Onyx, they, they'll basically say that, that it's sort of a test run for one day if they're able to actually open the platform. I mean, I, I think there's positivity there from a technological standpoint. I just think, you know, primarily because the traditionals can't really do it yet. Um, I just don't, like, I think the ETF wrapper is effectively the same as tokenized gold. Like, you know, if you look at the, the spider gold ETF, like, it's except, just a matter of whether you have access to that. that. I can't trade the ETF when the markets are closed. And that's, that's three days of the week, two and a half days of the week. Yeah, that's true. I, like I said, I think that's the main difference. And plenty the, the of people difference. can't access it. Yeah, and plenty of people can't access it. I, I, Alex, I tend to agree with you that uh, most of this institutional, quote, adoption is really just a test just in case. But it is interesting to see the names and the size of the institutions that are trying it, right? I mean, you have to pay attention when you see J.P. Morgan, regardless of what Jamie Dimon says, uh, utilizing Onyx, Franklin Templeton, uh, tokenizing treasuries. It's only $370 million worth so far, but that's real. Now you see an announcement between J.P. Morgan and Apollo, I believe, yesterday. I mean, these are literally the most yeah. reputable, largest institutions on Wall Street. At least they're dipping their toes. For sure. I mean, if you, if you look at Franklin Templeton's thing, right, like that's not democratizing access. All of that is like fully KYC on chain. So there's, there isn't like right. wide access. Let me just give you a quick story about this thing called the Wall Street paperwork crisis in the 60s, which is what resulted in the creation of centralized clearing in the U.S., which we now know as the DTCC. So after, you know, World War II and the baby boomers, there was a massive boom of investing on Wall Street, something like, uh, I forget the exact numbers, but an enormous amount. And they were still... They were still settling bilaterally and there was no netting and they were using paper. So, for example, with no bilateral netting, like if, if my broker sells 100 you know, shares of IBM and your broker buys 100 shares of IBM from me, rather than just netting it out to zero and updating a ledger in some location, um, they would literally shuttle the, my, 100, my broker's 100 shares in physical form across Wall Street. And then your broker would send another hundred back. And there was so much activity that literally certificates were getting dropped in puddles and left on desks. And it was, it became such a hassle that the New York Stock Exchange used to close every Wednesday at noon. So literally four hours of trading were cut out of the trading day just to give broker dealers the, the opportunity to catch up marking their books and, and keeping their ledgers intact. It was such a problem that 25% of broker dealers went out of business during this time simply due to paperwork uh, problems. And that is what led to the creation of a centralized intermediary to handle this. We, we would have preferred, of course, to, to act peer to peer. That's what we did, but we didn't have the technology to make it possible. You know, you fast forward to today and you realize, wow, we really do have that technology to make it possible. That's why the DTCC wrote a paper in 2016, arguing that they themselves should be disintermediated by the distributed ledger technology, but it hasn't happened. And that's because 
50 years, 60 years of regulation and plumbing has gone into making this the current system. So you just have to imagine how big the hurdle is from a technology adoption standpoint, a switching cost standpoint, and a regulatory standpoint to actually get us beyond these pilot phases between Apollo and JPM and stuff. And again, keep in mind, since uh, Christine Moy is head of digital assets at Apollo. She ran Onyx at JPM. So this isn't like, it's not like they yeah, randomly came up with it. Yeah. Like, so these are, these are early pilots. I think it's, it's, it's very bullish for the adoption of blockchain. I hope that these private enterprise ledgers eventually either through a bridge or some other thing, like connect to the open internet of blockchains. Um, there's That's not in sight though today for the vast majority of these things. Patrick? Yeah, there's a couple of other benefits to tokenizing these assets uh, as long as they're on public blockchains. Uh, and the first is that you can actually turn non-yield bearing assets into yield bearing assets. So it opens up the possibility that eventually you could have tokenized gold and you could you could lend it out or you could somehow be a market maker for it. Um, and some sort of automated market maker, um, which would be a clear advantage over simply holding gold because then you're actually earning yield on it. Uh, and the other advantage is, again, to use it in DeFi applications, but as collateral to take out an instant loan. Yeah, the the, op- the existing financial primitives in DeFi are incredibly powerful. So like, there, there's clear reason to move, whether it's gold or other assets, into you know, a financial ecosystem in which open source software developers are, are building, you know, these building blocks, like that's a huge positive. I just don't think we're very close, unfortunately. Yeah. And even on the private blockchains, just speaking of JP Morgan Onyx, the same example, not that I'm pushing for this by any stretch, but one of the main things when they were asked about why they did this, you know, that first transaction of that money market fund between BlackRock and Barclays was a cheaper faster, but also exactly what you described, which was even for them privately to be able to use it quickly as collateral, which is really, I think, compelling for, for larger institutions. Red, Mario ran, this wasn't even supposed to be our uh, main topic here, but I uh, really actually enjoying it. <laughs> um, I must say, I'm also enjoying it. It's something that I haven't thought, I mean, I spent some time thinking about, but it's actually very interesting. Very interesting to hear it. Yeah, um, Ryan, you were you were talking about um, Arthur Hayes. I want to talk about that one. His comments on on the CZ's treatment, and he made comparisons to. Can't remember which bank um, that got fined less. They did worse than what Binance did, and the CEO kept his options and and uh, retired in peace. I can't remember the name of the bank. I'll mention this. It's called, it's called every bank in history. Good job. And they, and they made comparisons think, uh, to 2008. They got Ryan and then Kristen. I think it was Damn. Wendy, Wendy, Crypto Wendy, Wendy, oh, just give me one second. Um, hold on. Um, hold on a second. Wendy, what's Wendy? It's HSBC. He's HSBC and Goldman. Yeah, so HSBC Goldman, I think there was one more. I'm just going to check the article. But that just the, the point is, is the same, though. He's talking about how crypto was treated very unfairly. But this goes against what we've been talking about, what other panelists, other lawyers have been saying, that it could have been a lot worse for Binance, could have been a lot worse for crypto. So which one is it? Yeah, it's it's is interesting. It I, I do think that to, to some degree, maybe like there's a bit of unfair treatment. But I, I do think the point that we made and kind of concluded, as you said last week, was actually that this what happened here with Binance was very similar to the kind of set- settlement you would have seen for a Wall Street bank for for something similar in the past. Would they as opposed- the CEO as well? Would they? Like, That's uh, what I was going to say. I think maybe the unfair treatment is of CZ and not of Binance as a whole. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. 
because CZ was directly involved. So the guy, the, the uh, Arthur Hayes, the guy, Arthur Hayes says, did former Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein get the same treatment as GS under his reign? Uh, helped former Malaysian Prime Minister Razak and financier, whatever his name is, to steal more than $10 billion. Jesus. That's the one Malaysia development yeah. uh, scandal. So, but then, yeah, but then I mean, but Gold, the, Goldman so, Sachs sits, sits in meetings with the uh, trade. <laughs> Goldman Sachs is making jump, policy, right? And so uh, it's very different. Kristen, I think you were jumping in on nah. that particular point. <clears throat> Kristen? Yeah, no, yeah, sorry. I, I don't I don't know if you even want to talk about Binance that much anymore, but I, I had a question for, for Carlo and for Lawyer. Um, Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, so I, it's, I've just been surprised at kind of, I hate to use the word sloppy, but um, it, it seems like that the plea agreement and the consent order, there were discrepancies in terms of how long the... Um, uh, monitorship would be imposed like it was five years i think under the plea agreement and three years under the consent order and then when this comes out that they haven't agreed in advance to the travel restrictions i just question like was any of that intentional like i, I was talking to john reed stark the other day about did they deliberately not address this travel restriction um in the plea agreement because they knew he wouldn't agree to it uh, and so I just just wanted to get your take. Like, I'm a tax attorney, I, so defer to, to criminal attorneys. But there's nothing that says they couldn't have agreed to the travel restriction in the plea agreement, right? Well, you know, generally, in my experience, the way that this usually goes down is when you have a defendant that's agreed to waive grand jury indictment and plea to an information, first step is you go to court and you get arraigned on the information. So he elected to go to court and appear on this charging document and enter a plea of guilty. The court then addresses the issue of release on, uh, on conditions pending sentencing. So I don't generally see an agreement in the plea agreement to release conditions or limiting, because that's a separate inquiry for the court. I think it might convolute and really complicate things to put release conditions in the plea agreement, because now those are more areas that could later be attacked and chipped away at. There's two things that happened in that court appearance. One is he appeared on the charges and pled guilty. The other is the determination as far as pre-trial or, in this case, pre-sentencing release conditions. So I think it was probably something that was definitely discussed. The, the monkey wrench in all of this was that the pretrial services report, which is done by the probation office, apparently from what I read in the filings, had recommended uh, uh, this restriction. Um, but the court is free to either accept that recommendation or ignore that recommendation. And the court listened to both sides and made its decision. Now it's being obviously taken up on further review. Yeah, it's interesting too. I forgot about that, and I, I read this morning um, that the I think the 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 state the government came back and said we didn't really say that we that the pretrial rec or suggester advocated it, but they recommended it. But yeah, it would be up to the court's discretion. Um, do you think it's notable that there's this discrepancy? Like John Reed Stark and I were discussing, there's this discrepancy between the terms of the monitorship. Um, you know, three years versus five years. It's just, for it seems like they would have had this really buttoned up. I mean, given how long this has been in play, it just seems odd to me that there's this discrepancy. And I assume that the monitorship would last the five, the longer of the two. 
I, I would have thought the longer of the two as well. I, I know that there was a lot of confusion, and I, I, I confess I was initially confused because I did see reports of three years and I saw reports of five years. I think it's five. Uh, can we all agree that it, it's basically five and that there was maybe some misunderstanding? And somebody aggressively corrected me yesterday that it was three. So I think we're still in the uh, not quite sure camp. There you go. I'm certain they're going to say it's the longer of. I mean, that's that would be my my guess. Ron? Yeah, I was just going to weigh in from the D.C. side here, at least from what we're seeing um, on the buy-in situation, because all their lobbyists are gone now. Um, and they're, they're buying to U.S. folks, but they hired them, obviously, during the uh, SBF explosion uh, literally a year ago. And SBF wasn't wrong when he said that there was a reason why CZ couldn't come to D.C. Um, and it's because this has been going on for about two three years now. Uh, but one thing, at least in the uh, the topic we were just talking about more of like their monitoring of Binance itself. You know, we've been talking to a couple of folks over at the uh, FBI, DOJ, and they have admitted that Binance is just a honeypot when it comes to illicit finance. And they would rather have it open in terms of being able to monitor all those transactions for just finding syndicates uh, uh, across the spectrum of the illicit finance space. Um, but there's actually pretty much kneecapped it from a U.S. side for quite some time. So uh, I'm curious to see how it goes on. But uh, Biden has no friends here in D.C. on the Republican side, Democrat side, Congress agencies. Uh, but you know, the law enforcement folks we've talked to, it's pretty interesting to hear that they want to keep Binance open solely for just monitoring all the illicit transactions flowing through. So wait, uh, so then the implication there, Ron, is that you said it is a honeypot, not that it was a honeypot, right? Because I think that there's been a bit of a assumption that a lot of this happened in the past and was not actively happening at the moment. Uh, and then I guess there's also needs to be differentiated whether this is known to Binance or it's just something that's happening sort of on the I, platform. I like I, I like your first question, though, Scott. Ron, if you can focus on that first part of the question, very interesting. Is it still a honeypot? Is that it recent transactions, recent uh, customers, or is that just the past? Uh, it seems to be uh, recent. Uh, I mean, there, especially when it comes to the uh, the China fentanyl linkage that Elliptic uh, highlighted, the Hamas one thing that's been happening. Uh, and again, I know Tron's also involved in that as well, but. Um, uh, they've been monitoring this for quite some time, uh, and they think that keeping this open will still have a lot of folks go through this on the illicit side, unless they pivot to another exchange or something to that effect. Um, but you know, they could have gone a lot stricter and a lot more heavy-handed on this. Um, we'll see if that uh, happens. But uh, from the law enforcement side here, they decide to keep it up uh, more functioning and just to keep this. Uh, at least monitoring the current transactions are still going through. They're, they're aware that folks are going to pivot to other exchanges, but uh, it's been a, it's still a honeypot for them, at least uh, right now. And then the second thing, is the implication there that Binance is aware that these transactions are happening, or is this sort of... Uh, yeah, and let me... Just a yeah, and Ron, let me let me get to another question because again, I spoke to myself. Um, the, uh, and and you said that uh, fun, uh, funds will just go to other exchanges. What does that all mean to, for other exchanges? Like, could we see the uh, the DOJ, the SEC, um, announce similar action against smaller exchanges, or they've made an example of the big ones and they'll probably wait for the new ones to uh, to change their ways? So they were definitely trying to make an example. Um, uh, at least on the illicit finance side of things. Uh, but as we're seeing through other, you know, enforced actions from other exchanges, again, those are mostly focused on uh, securities versus commodities, um, you know, enlisting securities, uh, unregistered securities, what have you, with Kraken, Coinbase, 
Uh, I'm sure there'll be several more other changes uh, getting sued by the SEC in a, in a matter of months. It seems to be an all-out war here and not slowing down anytime soon. Um, but it, they are aware that other folks will go to other exchanges. Again, they largely are offshore. And we've seen sanctions played um, from the Treasury Department to other offshore exchanges, most notably uh, was it's Hydra was one that got sanctioned recently. There was also the uh, Bitsolato one that was kind of everyone thought that was in Binance last year and or this year I guess in February, but it was actually Bitsolato, which no one really heard about in DC. Um, but they're trying to send a message, obviously, to the rest of the international exchanges that hey, DOJ, our bounds can extend past the United States, and we are willing to hold you accountable and also potentially detain you. So um, it, it is definitely a warning shot to folks um, who are looking to maybe onboard some of the more sketchier folks, uh, even if they are offshore of the United States. Yeah, That's really interesting. It, it, yeah, yeah uh, ahead, I think we've butchered the story. No, I was going to ask uh, about why the hell you put the ARC. Did you change the title? No, ARC selling $5 million worth of Coinbase. Why is that newsworthy? Like they've sold Coinbase, they bought... Um, uh, Robin Hood, why is that? Uh, why is that a big deal? I mean, I think Coinbase is doing track. well. Can, yeah, yeah. Can Coinbase actually well, made an eighteen-month high. Yeah, yeah response. I, to I think that this is a technical trade by by Ark. I think that uh, Kathy Wood has been outspokenly bullish, obviously, about Coinbase and very much so about Bitcoin. Has some of the most hyperbolic price predictions for the next, you know, five ten years of of anyone on Wall Street. She's probably the most bullish person you'll find. But they they trade. Right. And uh, I think if you look at Coinbase right now, it just hit uh, 18 month high around 120. I think I'm not looking at it right now. 119, 121, somewhere in that ballpark. And it's massively, you know, overbought. If you're looking at technical indicators, it's just had an incredible run. So I don't think uh, anyone should be surprised that Kathy would, would, would take profit. It's a good lesson for people though, you know, in viewing things through a trading lens versus an investing lens as an investor. Cause you could, st- you could still, you could Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, because she still hold. It's not like she sold. They sold their entire Coinbase position, right? They're taking profit on buys that they made down below, and still believes that Coinbase will go much higher eventually. But she's actually it's a reminder. It's a reminder as a market as the market recovers, you can still be bullish, but but uh, take some profits off the table. I think this is the 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 lesson that matters. This is something that people forget. Yeah, Peter yeah, can see us got it. Oh, yeah, Peter Peter had. A, I just saw Peter lifted his mic. Go ahead. Yeah, I would also just mention that they've actually had outflows again in the past few weeks. So they're still very close to the smallest number of shares outstanding. They were getting inflows a couple of weeks ago. That's returned to outflows. So she may just. Are you talking about ARC? Hand. Sorry, Peter. Are you talking about the ARC specifically or coin? Yeah, the ARC fund. The ARC, so, yeah, right, the ARC fund. She also has to manage those as well. So if, presuming she had outflows, she had to sell something. So maybe she chose that as well. So it's a little bit different. And it is a little bit interesting to me that despite kind of this resurgence of the Magnificent Seven, despite Bitcoin and all these other things, ARK shares outstanding are still near their all-time lows. So that fund itself really just hasn't attracted the buzz that it once had. So I think she's going to have to manage to that. I mean, it was absolutely annihilated in the, in the drop. Uh, I mean, one of the worst before, you know, I, I think that's one of those that just o- overshot to the moon, but the correction then was so much more dramatic. But I think that Kathy, to some degree, just really went from the ultimate hero of Wall Street to just absolutely, you know, being beaten down and, and the impression of people of her just being at, at all time lows. I mean, really, you know, she took a real beating. And I've got to admit, I've actually been long arc for the first time in the last month or so. So I've been Me buying too. 
low 40s or whatever. And it's a name that I hated way back when. But it feels like if we're going to get some sort of resurgence of crypto, if the IPO market can come alive a little bit, that fund should actually do pretty well. So going to keep an eye on it. Yeah. So Mario, that's the reason. I think it's just anytime you see someone selling something that's doing well, it becomes you, somehow newsworthy. Can you, and people can track you it very it, closely. Yeah. Can you link this to a quick market update? I know there's not much happening today, but just a quick overview. I think we should do it in every space. Gareth dropped out, but maybe you, Patrick, Peter, and others could uh, give us a quick overview. I'm not sure if Ryan's still here. Can you hear me, Scott? Yeah, I'm just opening. Uh, you caused me to actually stand up. Oh, and look at my Peter, go ahead. Go ahead, Peter. Peter, go ahead. Perfect. You know, again, I, I think we're going to see kind of strength across markets coming into year end. What I think was really telling, though, last week when NVIDIA announced earnings, the stock sold off, but the markets actually did reasonably well as a whole. So I think you want to start looking, and I don't know whether this is going to apply to crypto, but certainly I think it's going to apply to the regular market, the laggard. So you're starting to see the Russell 2000 do well. You're starting to see the equal weight S&P and the equal weighted NASDAQ outperform the um, market weighted indices. So I think you're going to see a little bit rally into the laggards in regular markets into year end. I don't know whether that's going to translate into crypto where you might see some buying into some of the, you know, less interesting names, um, but it does feel like there's some speculation there and people are putting their money to work and they're trying to capture a move in the names that haven't moved. So that's what I'm looking for into year end. I think a lot of hedge funds are very caught, very long, the kind of big, well-known names, short everything else. And I think that's starting to get corrected a little bit. So look for that to squeeze into year end. That's kind of my view. Aren't Peter, aren't a lot of them also still just sitting in cash and praying for a dip? Yeah, and it's looking like that dip's not going to come, I think. So that, Isn't that that's another good point. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's a lot of people who are just missing it, right, Com completely and have missed the run all around because of the bearish, overwhelming bearish sentiment that this correction has to come. Eventually will, but we'll see if they're liquidated before it does. But Mario Rand was pretty like, a, go ahead, Mark. I think last week I had to justify being long, kind of quoting, you know, Wayne's world. So I thought that was immature. And if this keeps going, I'm still probably going to be recommending long and I'm going to have to go down to Beavis and Butthead level of maturity. So it feels wrong. There's so many reasons to be short markets and risk, but I think that's just the wrong trade right now. I think we're going to get the squeeze into year end. And for Rand, you were pretty aggressive about uh, thinking this is a good time to sell as of yesterday though, right? If you're yeah, still but there. Ryan, it depends what, what, what side of the bed Ryan wakes up on. So yesterday was a big well, I also side. think it's really important <laughs> to attach a time frame. I, I think it's really important to attach a time frame, right? Because you can remember like two or three weeks ago, he was saying in many were, you know, Pepe is running. This is the end of this run, right? And so that was the end of it for a week, right? As an investor, that's a blip. You don't care. But once again, if you're trading and you're looking to, you know, play the crypto washing machine and reallocate to something else that you think will pump next, which I don't recommend. Um, I'm talking. Then it makes sense. Then, then it makes sense. So, I mean, we've seen altcoins somewhat, you know, that we still see these massive moves, but for the past couple of weeks, the big, the, the big names that had moved have somewhat consolidated, right? I mean, Bitcoin's chilling around 37,000, having a lot of trouble with that 38,000 pre Luna level. I don't think any surprises there. It just feels like this is, it's the end of the year. Low volume, low liquidity, some things are going to go left and right. But the market, in my opinion, is just holding its breath for the ETF. And then we'll, then we'll see which direction it's really going to go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you there. Uh, let's go to, to – I want to talk about uh, to gold down. Can you bring them up, uh, Scott? 
Because I want to ask you a few yeah. questions. Let me let me uh, see. Uh, that's because uh, while we're bringing them up, so while we're bringing them up, Patrick, uh, are you seeing more interest when it comes to uh, tokenizing real world assets? Because I know there's a lot of hype behind it after Singapore. Uh, absolutely. If you look at the on-chain growth of total uh, tokenized real-world assets, especially U.S. Treasuries, uh, it's easily one of the fastest-growing categories of DeFi this year. Uh, still relatively small, even in terms of crypto. You know, where we're talking, depending on what you count, we're probably talking low billions. Uh, but compare that to a year ago when it was arguably in the you know low hundreds of millions range. That's a huge, huge increase. So that's still standing in the way. How's how's the regulatory landscape now compared to before? I would say other people can speak much better to that than me. Okay, is, can anyone jump in? Carlo, maybe you can jump in on this one. You or Alex, how's the regulatory landscape when it comes to, to uh, uh, tokenizing real world assets? Because this industry, along with gaming, which is my favorite, seem to be gaining most of the traction. Um, and potentially leading. Actually, I want to talk about the metaverse today. We'll do it tomorrow because there's a bit of movement there. But they seem to be leading the, 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 this uh, potential bull run. Lawyer, your, your mic is gone, uh, robotic yeah. Mario. But uh, yeah, the, the, meta, yeah. the metaverse is back. Yeah, okay, we got him up. No, I was asking on the regulatory clarity side. Like we're seeing gaming and, and token uh, and uh, tokenizing real world assets uh, potentially being the two the two uh, narratives that lead the next bull market. I'm curious if there's still hurdles that we're not taking into consideration. Lawyer. So, so there are. I, I, I'm working very closely with a company called Infinio. Who's doing, it was actually working on um, tokenizing um, insurance, life, whole life insurance policies. And I'm starting to see what the obstacles are, and they're overcomable, and we're working on all those things. And it's just amazing to see all of the things that in the future will be tokenized and you know whether or not they're all accredited or traded on DEXs and, or, you know, what new companies will come out to help facilitate all that. It's all just so um, revolutionary. And, and um, I, I, the regulations in the States are actually, when you get down to it, pretty accommodating when it comes to trying to tokenize something. You know, in, in the end of the day, it'll all have to be done right. But, you know, I think a lot of those risks, like when it comes to allocation or where the, where the gold, for example, is held, those problems exist in... in the traditional world too, and they get blessed by the SEC, so you can feel better. And I think you might have that in the, the tokenized assets too. Um, so you'll see that come into play all over the place. Anywhere you can, you can put an investment or invest in a thing. IP, for example, you know, you're going to be able to invest in intellectual property, maybe a mm. you know a sports career. It's all going to be tokenized. I agree. Uh, since we have BitDAO, not BitDAO, GoldDAO, uh, GoldDAO, I've got a few questions for you and anyone from the panel that wants to ask some questions. Alex, I'll give you, I'll let you jump in for, for some quick thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then we'll real, go to GoldDAO afterwards. Please go yeah, ahead. Real, 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 real quick, Mario, thanks. Um, I, I think that the rise in treasuries on chain has been driven primarily by a search for yield among crypto investors. There's nobody that I know that's has access to traditional markets that's like, oh, thank God, I can buy treasuries, you know, on a DEX today. So it, it's really more of a story about the rates environment and and issuers moving to where people are and demanding, saying there's there's some market here of people that want yield but have crypto native wealth. Just a quick example of this is like, if you think about the Curve founder, remember when he had the 
there was questions about whether his curve uh, loans on Ave would get liquidated. Like if he could have taken those curve tokens and and borrowed cash off them at say Fidelity, he certainly would have. <laughs> like there's the the DeFi today is servicing crypto native wealth, and I, and I think there are significant regulatory impediments when it comes to putting things like securities, which you know IP and other things may be. On, on chain, there are big questions about possession and control under the custody rule. There are, there are issues about clearing and settlement. There's no rec- recognition in the U.S. of any of the clearing settlement or trading platforms in DeFi. So I think until we have, I, I think fundamentally from an issuer standpoint, there it's doable. I think the, the market infrastructure and trading infrastructure is effectively not recognized in the U.S. And there are significant re- regulatory actions and both legislative and sort of guidance related that make DeFi very, very tough to use uh, legally yeah. in the U.S. Alex, I was going to say, isn't it a bit of an indictment or at least uh, should be eye-opening CRV tokens should not be used widely as collateral, right? You say that you right. can't do it, obviously, in TradFi. There's a reason for that. Uh, and we saw it with FTX, right? So DeFi uh, carries... If they're yeah. going to take altcoins as collateral, carries a tremendous amount more risk than collateralizing assets in TradFi. Right, the, and and if just just as a quick list of things that are unresolved and currently impediments to using DeFi generally in the U.S., right? You have the broker rule, which effectively imposes BSA, KYC, AML requirements on on any facilitative service, quote unquote, which is most of DeFi. And they're not stupid in the IRS's guidance, which is hundreds of pages. They talk about whether protocols have upgraded in the past, right? And that being a a thing that would justify them needing to upgrade to support this. You have the expanded definition of an exchange under the National uh, Exchange Act by the SEC, which encompasses most of DeFi. There there is going to be an emergence absent, uh, you know, more real work done in the U.S. of effectively pirate finance and that is illegal in the U.S. on on chain. And then and then some some hopefully some legal DeFi that emerges. The real problem is that other jurisdictions like the U.K. and Europe have done a lot of work to either in the case of Europe's uh, Mika create a bespoke regime that that addresses crypto or in the case of the UK, the FCA has said, no, we want to shoehorn it into the existing regulations. But here's a giant pile of work that explains how to do that. The SEC has basically taken the UK's position without doing any of that work. So there, there are huge gaps in the regulatory framework for, for using DeFi in particular in the US that, that will inhibit the adoption of tokenized assets in the US in the near term. We, we, we have gold now. You guys are going through it as we speak. Um, I, I want to start with the first. I know Ryan and Scott and others. Anyone on the panel that has a question, put your hand up. Anyone in the audience that has a question, put it in the comments section or check the pin tweet. I'm outside. Sorry for the background noise. But guys, first, before we ask you the questions about tokenizing real world assets, challenges, opportunities, etc. First, basic question: What is tokenization? What is the tokenization of gold? Just for the average Joe that doesn't understand it. Hello, everyone. So thank you first to, for having me here in this uh, crypto town hall, AMA. Uh, I'm Julian Erni, uh, the CEO of DAO Link, the company that is initiating the Gold DAO. And I'm now with uh, Dustin Becker, the tech lead of the project. And there is also Yulin Liu, our economic um, advisor. So uh, for your first question, Mario, I will let uh, Dustin uh, answer it. Okay. So um, hey, everyone. Uh, thanks also from my side. Um, so your question, yeah, what is the Gold DAO? What is the project? It's um, It's a big project between uh, multiple entities who are involved in this. 
And the overarching goal of this is to tokenize gold and to create a US dollar stablecoin that is fully backed by physical gold um, that we store in vaults here in Switzerland. And we do this um, in three phases. So we did the, the first phase already a couple of months ago, where we basically tokenize um, physical gold in forms of NFTs. And uh, this physical gold is uh, stored in vaults here in Switzerland, which are periodically audited by independent auditors. And um, that's also kind of a partly answer to your, one of your previous questions. Um, and then uh, with this first phase, we... the the custody the the custody question is like well, if you, if custody in Switzerland is different to custody in in some Eastern European country known in Moldova, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So having this in Switzerland um, is also a big benefit. And um, on top of this, then we have the the second phase of this project, which is um, the the fungible gold token. Uh, which basically allows any holders of the, um, the NFTs, of the gold NFTs, to swap them for uh, gold tokens, or GLDT is what we call them, um, at a ratio of 1 gram to 100 GLDT. And why we're used doing this is basically to fractionalize this, um, uh, the gold NFTs to make it more liquid and then actually usable also for um, DeFi projects. And um, one of these applications is then the third phase, actually, where we are going to launch the US dollar-backed stablecoin, um, which is fully backed by the um, GLDT, by this gold token. And we thereby create um, a US dollar-backed stablecoin, which is fully backed by physical gold. So, so you've... Yeah. All right. So, so you got three. you got three categories, three pillars to what you're building, correct? Yeah, exactly. You've got the... Yeah. Gold back stable coin, you've got the NFT and you've got the fungible token, correct? Uh, yes, yeah. In the end, that's those, yeah. Uh, okay. And then why, so, so can you just explain again, because I'm on the move, so cut out a bit for me. Can you explain again the difference between why, why have the NFT and a fungible token? We understand the stable coin, I think it's a pretty clear use case. Um, I want to understand the regula- the, the, any regulatory hurdles you have when it comes to a gold back stable coin. Um, um, and then the, the risk of custody. But why have a fungible token and NFT? What's the use case for each? Uh, thank you, Mario. So you've, I may chime in. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm the economic advisor of this uh, project. So the question is, why do we need gold NFT, right? I think this relates to, I think it was um, one of the speakers, I think Rand mentioned this, the proof of reserve, right? So how do you build trust? Why would people trust that you really have the gold? Why would I trust you that you are not misusing uh, our gold? Uh, with a gold NFT, you know, for every gold bar, the gold bar has a serial number. For every gold bar, we use the origin technology to mint one gold NFT. And this gold NFT stores a high re- resolution picture of this gold bar and also has the, the serial number of this gold bar, right? So if users hold the gold NFT, you can redeem for the real physical gold bar 24-7. If there's uh, um, not enough gold bars or these gold bars are misused, then the users will find out. So this is uh, the first step uh, why we have the gold NFT to build the trust. This is uh, how we solve the challenge that, you know, faced by most of the gold tokens. Gold token is not, I would say, a crazy, uh, crazily innovative idea. It's very easy when you think about uh, tokenizing gold uh, RWA, you would think I tokenize the real estate, the uh, stock, and then the next thing you would think is gold, right? But why we don't see so many, uh, or, or we, why don't we see the massive adoption? I would say one of the reasons is the, the proof of reserve. 
I think good NFT can uh, solve this problem. So that's why there's one more layer of this good NFT before we mean the uh, GLDG token. I have another question on the token. Okay, Mario, you're sounding, uh, you're sounding robotic again. So didn't okay. you want to ask about the fungible side, the, the token itself yeah, outside why, of the why NFT, is that correct? Gold? What's the purpose of it? I think someone on the panel was questioning it earlier. What's the whole goal of it? Is that just purely to allow it to be available 24-7 to trade? Um, so I think that's one of the reasons. So it allows you to trade gold 24-7. Um, secondly, um, I would say gold is a good stock value. If you see the... Um, Purchasing power of the U.S. dollar over the last 20 years, the U.S. dollar has lost 50% of its purchasing power. So the goods, let's say if you spend one million to buy some goods 20 years ago, now it costs you two million. And the, the, the loss of the purchasing power is eroded by the inflation. We all know that. So the Federal Reserve, they target 2% inflation rate. And then we see actually since 2008, the inflation rate has been higher than 2% most of the time. And... In comparison, gold price has increased more than three times in the last 20 years. So gold is a good store of value. That's why we, you know, we tokenize gold and make gold more accessible to, to, to people. Okay, so accessibility. Yeah. so accessibility. So accessibility being one of the main, okay, accessibility. Uh, yeah. Other than accessibility, what is, is so accessibility kind of lead to more liquidity. Um, yeah. any, other, any other use cases uh, yeah. beyond so, accessibility? Yeah, I would say that's the, the second innovation of the of the gold ball uh, project is that it also make gold a payment token. If you look like tether gold and pass gold, they pack one token to one ounce of gold, and the price of one ounce gold now is around two thousand US dollar. So if you have one pax gold token, you go to buy a coffee which costs let's say three point five US dollar. And you do the calculation, how much is that? Maybe 0 0.00175, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a good payment token. And uh, with gold doll, you first you can buy one gram of gold NFT and you send it to a swap smart contract. And then you can mint, you are your own central bank now. You can mint 100 GLDD token, the gold token. And now since one gold token is packed to 0 0.01 gram of gold, meaning one GLDT is around 60 cents. This is a bad payment token. Right, so that's uh, the second, I would say, usage of the gold token. It is also a payment token. We clearly distinguish the utility of, of gold. First, it's a store value. You buy gold NFT, you have a store value. You will see the, the price appreciation over time. Mm. Secondly, the second token, you can swap the gold NFT for GLDD token. You can use it as a payment token. And every 100 GLDD token, you can redeem, you can, you can swap back to get this one gram of gold NFT, right? So this is the second utility, it's a payment token. And third, gold token, the price is more stable than I would say most crypto assets like Ether, Bitcoin. And this makes gold token a very good collateral for DeFi. So I would say these are the three utilities of the gold tokens. That makes sense. And then how does the gold DAO work? How does the DAO structure? Um, maybe I can uh, answer that question. So the, the gold DAO, it's um, running entirely on the Internet Computer Protocol. Um, and they have this um, the DAO structure that they call the SNS, the Service Nervous System. So this is um, a built-in DAO structure that uh, Definity has developed to decentralize entire applications. 
And um, the gold DAO is running on this. And basically what we're doing is we're handing over the control of the um, smart contracts, uh, which are called canisters on ICP. Um, we're handing those over to the SNS, to this gold DAO. And then the community will actually be governing the whole, uh, whole project. And all these individual contributors that we have in the project, they're going to be part of this DAO. And then the entire DAO will decide on the direction of... Um, of the of the project and the implementations and uh, also the evolutions of the smart contracts. How can somebody participate in the DAO? Sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to understand how someone becomes a part of the DAO or participate. You um, so we are the Gold DAO is uh, issuing its own token. It's called the Gold Governance Token, and uh, basically by either contributing in the um, SNS sale, which will start next week. Um, we are, you can uh, take part in the DAO or afterwards by purchasing the gold governance on exchanges uh, and then locking them up in, uh, uh, in the DAO. And uh, then that allows you to participate in the DAO. Do you have any, any deals with any exchanges yet? Um, so the Because uh, your whole use case about liquidity is obviously getting exchanges early on is, is paramount. Yeah, so we're um, talking to exchanges. The, um, the gold NFT, this is already launched. This is live. This is running on the Yumi NFT marketplace. This has been running for a while now. Um, the gold token, this fungible token, this is um, still in the development phase right now. So we're going to launch this in the near future. So when we launch this, we will have it ready with exchanges and people can then actually directly go and uh, purchase the, um, the gold token. Okay, makes sense. Um... And then the gold stable coin, the gold backed stable coin. Yeah, here. So the gold backed stable coin. This is um, this is the third phase. So this will come after the um, the gold token. Um, so here it's um, it's similar. So we are uh, right now in the development phase of this. And once we will launch that, uh, we will have it also directly listed on exchanges. So it's really fully available to uh, to anybody to use it. Uh, how's um, Scott? Do you know much about uh, how's the uh, Pax Gold uh, going? Kinesis Gold, Pax Gold, and Tether Gold. Good question. I actually I would love to maybe maybe Does these anyone... guys even know. I, I don't know the metrics of, on but, how uh, successful um, those have been. Those products obviously exist. If I may chime in a little bit here about yeah, the, uh, Pax Gold, I, I know a little about a little bit about Pax Gold. Um, they, you know, you could like a. Um, buy a certain amount of gold and then they will, it's, it's sort of like Tether. Instead of using bank, they are using like some gold wallet. You can send some gold, of course, from some gold issuer they um, uh, recognize and then that will mean the PAX gold for you. But there's like a minimum threshold um, for you to, to mint the, the, the tokens, PAX gold tokens. And with a gold door, it's a different. So, um, is, I would say it's more decentralized. You don't. So, get, Harry, you don't I didn't. Uh, sorry, man. Can I ask yeah. you again? How, how does the Pax Gold work exactly? I didn't understand. Um, so the Pax Gold is a one token is packed to one ounce of the gold. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So they, I would say, they are the main issuer. They could um, they they buy gold when they see there's a demand. They buy gold, store in their wallet, and then that means uh, the corresponding amount of tokens, and then uh, release it in the market. That's a much clunkier process than obviously Tether yeah, directly. Yeah, yeah. You, can see why, uh, you can see why that needs to be improved if you need to deliver physical gold to them to then get the token in return. But, and how much, how, how big is their market cap at the moment? 
that's so because so I'm, I'm trying to understand the adoption of of yeah. uh, of gold to tokenize gold. gold is around 500 million and also tesla gold is also around 500 million um, I think they have some sort of bottlenecks, mostly because the two challenges I mentioned before. One is uh, how do you prove that you really own this gold, and they are not mis misusing, right? You could pledge this. Are they? But are they? Yeah. Are they audited? Sorry, Linda, I, I, I might jump in. Something's just yeah. going to get more clarity for me and for the audience. But are they? Because you guys are based in Switzerland mm -hmm. and you're audited. Are they also audited, and where are they based? And the reason I'm making that comparison I'm, is I'm comparing you to the market leader and mm -hmm. see what advantage you guys have above them. Uh, and why you guys uh, would, would do better. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm no expert in Pax Gold and the Tether Gold. From my research, I found that they are best also in Switzerland, London, and also somewhere else. They are also audited. Um, but the thing is, auditing is one thing. Um, that's um, one layer proof of reserve. But still, you know, with the token, with a gold bar you store in some wallet, it is audited. You can still use this gold bar as a collateral. You can still get loans from some banks, right? You cannot prevent the misuse of the gold bars. And then with the gold ball, uh, gold, gold doll, the, the innovation, the innovative part here is with the gold NFT, everyone can redeem for the gold bar at any time, 24-7. And this really prevents the, the um, gold NFT issuer from misusing your, your gold bars. You know, like if some user, they, they, they go to your headquarters and say, hey, now I want to redeem for my gold bar with this serial number. And you tell the user, hey, wait one week because we need to produce. Then you know there's some trouble, right? Makes sense. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I mean, Mario, that for a lot of people who are into the idea of NFTs uh, before the PFP explosion, this was the reason why, right? I mean, even for this same kind of use case for supply chain and, and obviously for proof of ownership and existence of real world assets. So I think that's a really added, nice added layer over like the PAX gold, which you said it's about 470 market million market cap. I looked it up. So big, yeah. not huge. Right. Yeah, like I'm just saying, how how could it be? How could you guys get a bigger share of the market? Like, how how could uh, a gold-backed stablecoin compete with the likes of uh, Circle and Tether? That, that's a very good point. So, um, I, I would say, like the second challenge of of these kind of gold tokens um, is that um, these gold tokens they are more like um, a stop value. It's not a payment token. One token is equal to one ounce of gold. Now it's around two thousand dollars. It's um, the that's but that's for the but that's for, yeah. yeah okay. And then Sorry. compared to Tether and Circle, um, they have their deposits, uh, bank deposits, right? So you have to trust uh, the issuer. Secondly, you have to trust the bank. They won't like a Silicon Valley bank that they could default, right? Then the USDC depeg for for I think around two or three weeks till ninety cents to ninety cents because the Silicon Valley Bank was at the verge of, of bank default. Um, so with uh, the USDG, the gold-backed stablecoin, uh, you know that gold is in the reserve, it's audited by KPMG, and secondly, you can redeem at any time. You know that there's a re really like a proof of reserve. Secondly, um, the collateral. If you look at like a USDC and USDT, their collateral are the USD bank deposits. And the USD is losing purchasing power. But the GLDT, this gold token, you pledge as a collateral, they are not losing the value. In the contract, they are appreciating over time. So let's say now you believe more in gold than in fiat currencies printed by any government in, in the world. You can buy some gold token. And then you, play, you, you for the daily usage, you still want USD peg dollar. So what you can do is you can 
you can buy gold, gold NFT. You swap them for gold tokens, and then you pledge gold tokens as a collateral. You can mint the USD packet gold token. That's our first three. It's a USDG. And then in a few years, you, you can pay back your debt. You can still get your GIDD token back. And this GIG token price is packed to the to the gold price, so this is appreciating over time. So I would say that's uh, the two advantages compared to USDC and USDT. First, you don't need to trust the banks. Uh, there's a better proof of reserve. Secondly, your collateral is well, that's a good selling point. It's a good selling point. Okay, you don't need to trust the banks. Yep. What do you trust more, gold or the banks, the banking system? I like that yep. one. Um, uh, last question I have for you guys. Um, I know we're a bit over time, so I apologize. But why IP? Why internet computer? ICP. Uh, ICP. Uh, let me let me take that. I mean, there is um, there's various reasons for that. So it depends really on which side, on which part you look at it, the project. So, for example, for the NFT side, um, we're using the Origin NFT protocol that was um, developed especially for real world assets, and um, the benefit of this is that. Uh, so it's running on ICP and um, it allows us to store all the assets related to the NFT directly in the NFT. Uh, so all the certificates, all the auditing reports, they are directly in, inside the NFT. So it's really fully, fully transparent and um, decentralized on, on the ICP. And uh, ICP is really one of the only blockchains that allow us to do that. And um, then, then uh, on top of that, now with the, um, the GLDT, with the gold token, um, it will allow us to easily also go cross-chain because um, ICP or Definity, the foundation who is developing ICP, um, they've integrated um, Ethereum and are also working on other um, blockchains to basically be able to easily uh, bridge assets to other blockchains. So this is really one of the key, one of the key features why we decided to build this on ICP. Did you guys cool. take any uh, grants or investment from the Definity Foundation or any of the ICP-related entities? No. Um, so let, let me quickly chime in here about the, uh, the three phases we, have, we are doing now. Phase one is Gold NFT. We already launched that a half year ago. And then the second phase is a, is a fungible GLDD token that we're going to launch in the next couple of months. Um, and then the GLDT, yes, now it's launched on ICP, and ICP is integrating other blockchain, and we also uh, we will do the multi-chain by ourselves. So we think GLDT will be a very good payment token and a collateral for DeFi. So we want the GLDT to appear in all the major blockchains, layer ones and layer twos. Um, cool. Yeah. Cool. No, I appreciate it. I think it's a good overview, Scott. I don't awesome. have any other questions. Do you have any other questions? No, me either. I think it's uh, really, really compelling, really interesting. Are you, are you investing in gold? I think it aligns. I think it. I am investing in gold, but I, I think it aligns well uh, with the kind of compelling narratives for the next cycle, right? I think RWA is really uh, going to be what real world assets. What we're going to be hearing about constantly for the next uh, two to three mm. years, and so being ahead of that uh, in this cycle, I think it's going to be really useful. I think I think can we can we stick to real world assets and not start saying RWA? It's not me, man. I, I hate the three letter titles for literally everything. But if you were have been at any conferences in the past few months, it's RWA everything. It's it's, it's a buffet. I what it is. It has, you have to give it an acronym before it kicks off a bull market. Every time something yeah, we, we can't get it on Saturday. Night. We can't get it uh, to be made fun of on Saturday Night Live unless it has a three, exactly. three letter. Exactly. 
Uh, but I think it's a, it's a good overview. I apologize for going over time and I appreciate Gold uh, Dow for coming on. If anyone wants to check him out, they're on the panel, but so you can check the link that's pinned at the top. Um, and I think that's it. Yeah, it's a good show and uh, we'll see everyone back tomorrow, Scott. See you guys tomorrow. Thanks. Bye, everyone.